the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Michael Perrell, my guest today. You know his writings from townhall.com as well as the Washington Times. He's got a new book out called Underdogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. Help me understand sometimes perhaps the, the dynamic here. You know, when, when we are the overdog and yet we demonstrate um, a, a propensity toward favoring the underdog, clearly those stakes are at odds. I wonder if some of this goes back to a sense of, of misplaced or confused guilt. I mean, sometimes we see Americans, even when we're the ones who clearly, even to the casual observer, Michael, have been injured, yet we take on a position supporting the underdog almost in a fashion of self-hatred. Why? I'm guilty occasionally of being a member of the reality-based community. So I'm going to stay factual. And there are people out there who feel this guilt. Okay, so I say to them, look, America is the number one power in the world. By definition, there must be one power in the world that is number one. So if you're so guilty and you feel so bad about it being America, fine. What are the alternatives? What are the alternatives? I mean, I look at the entire arc of history, and I see clearly, and I'm sure you do too, that this American moment is a miracle of history. It's something to be treasured. We've all heard that phrase, freedom is not free. I would add to that, I would say American exceptionalism is not free. It's something that needs to be earned and fought for every day, and we've seen that so clearly over the past two years. I would say that it's not inherited so much as it's fought for and won every day by Americans, and I say... They've earned it. And maybe that's the point that's, that's un- misunderstood. I have to think, for example, I started my day today by reading a op-ed piece arguing that we just ought to dispense with all of this. And the writer went on to talk about how the Star-Spangled Banner has so many references to war and, and you know, why should we be talking about war when we're going to enjoy a, a pastime? Of course, ironically, they're talking about this ahead of football, one of the most violent st- pastimes that we Americans enjoy. And yet I thought to myself as I read this article, how absolutely completely disconnected with history is this writer who doesn't understand that he's exercising his First Amendment rights to argue changing the lyrics or dispensing with altogether uh, the national anthem because he's offended by the war overtones, and yet it is the war overtones to which the national anthem refers that shed blood, that bought the very freedom that he enjoys to make such an opinion known publicly in the first place. What irony. And you see the power of this belief system, this underdogma. Do you think for a second that in any of our enemies' countries, there's currently people sitting themselves saying, you know what, um, we probably shouldn't sing that song that has stuff about it, you know, about killing people in it because it might offend uh, someone's sense of It just doesn't happen. And that's what happens when you have this queasiness about power. And it comes from this natural reaction. It's, it's a gut reaction. It's non-thinking. It bypasses the rational mind. It makes you automatically think that the powerful must be bad and the little guy must be good. And why would you think that? Well, you think that because every time you turn on a television show, 
a movie, the evening news, or even from the President of the United States, you hear over and over and over that when you achieve wealth and success and powerful, you're bad, you're a fat cat, you need to be demonized. And when you hear this for your whole life and you mix that in with that, that shared human experience that we all have of being a small and powerless baby as children, it just all comes together into this love-hate relationship with power that a lot of people who practice under dogma have actually learned how to manipulate inside of you and actually show you how that's done. It's quite disturbing. It goes right to the whole government takeovers. I know we're running out of time, but if you want to know how the government did all those takeovers, let's go through the takeovers. Big health insurance, big banks, big lenders, big insurance, big student lenders, big Wall Street fat cats. What do they have in common? They're all big fat cats. They're all big powers. And the government knows how you react to that. They just put the word big in there. They claim they're going to stand up for you, the little guy. And they use it to take your power away. This is a deep-seated belief system. And I want you to be able to see it clearly so you can rip it out of yourself because they're, they're using it to manipulate you right now. Well, I watched in a news story that I shared with my audience before you joined me tonight uh, concerning the push toward removing the opportunity for, quite frankly, the U.S. taxpayer to pay for abortions through the new health insurance law. And one of the Congress people arguing against it immediately makes the argument that, well, we thought Republicans were in favor of making government smaller. Obviously, this is an attempt for big government because they want to put government back in the bedroom once again. And, of course, it, it's, it's the very careful selection of certain words that they know is going to um, elicit a certain response. Yeah. Even though what may be communicated makes everything communicated there before and afterwards makes no sense whatsoever. If we pick on certain buzzwords, there it is. Even going back to the the example you share in the book, and we talked about this even related to sports a moment ago, the universal dislike that some have for the New York Yankees. And if you drill down as to why do you hate the Yankees so much, I think the honest person would simply answer, that's because they win so much. And they typically always beat my team. Therefore, I'm in favor of any team that's fighting or, or, or going up against the Yankees. I'm so happy you brought this up because I would love that we close with this because how do you satisfy those who practice under dogma, right? The only way to satisfy them is to stop being powerful. America's tried everything else. Foreign aid, liberated Europe, fund the United Nations, the most charitable nation in world history. Every time there's a disaster anywhere in the world, American helicopters are there on site saving people's lives. And by the way, you don't have helicopters if you don't have power. And the only way to satisfy under dogmatists is to, is to stop being number one, just like Yankees with the Yankee derangement syndrome. The only way to satisfy the Yankee haters is for the Yankees to lose. And I don't want America to lose. And that's what I show people in this book. You can actually embrace American power and exceptionalism because you've earned it. Good point and an excellent one to end on. Uh, it's a compelling book, Michael. We appreciate taking some time out of your schedule to share your insights and the hard work that went into this. Uh, by the way, of course, um, I mentioned that uh, Michael is also a colonist for uh, townhall.com, which is a, a sister property of uh, this Salem radio station. Point you in that direction to read his insights and musings. The book, again, called Under Dogma, How America's Enemies Use Our Love for the Underdog to Trash American Power. And the book available through Amazon.com and also information on the web at under-dogma.com. That's under-dogma.com. And our thanks again to Michael Perel for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, when you think about your relationship with others, 
so much of how we view and see and relate and interconnect with others is based on the way that we view, relate, and understand God. And so much of the way we do that is based on our thought process, the way we we mentally construct our image of God, who we perceive him to be. And to a large effect, as my guest asserts tonight, the way we view God also has a profound impact on our physical, mental, and obviously spiritual health. How do we go about how do we go about better understanding the relationship between the way we view God or think of God and the way it impacts so many parts of our life? Well, he tackles this very topic inside the pages of a new book called The God-Shaped Brain. Now, Dr. Tim Jennings is a board-certified Christian psychiatrist and master psycho pharmacologist, voted one of America's top psychiatrists by Consumer Research Council for 2008, 10, and 11. And he is on the board of Southern Pacific Association and is in private practice in Tennessee. Joins us now to talk about the findings inside the pages of this new work, The God-Shaped Brain. And Dr. Jennings, a delight to have you on the program. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Ironically, Scripture says so much about this topic, and we tend to kind of just kind of gloss over it, don't we? I mean, in the, in the sense that we're told about bringing our thoughts into captivity. Um, we, we understand a lot about uh, the uh, the idea that we see, for example, in Philippians 4, 8, that whatever, the things that we think about. And so if that's true in so many ways, why is it that seemingly a lot of us, maybe not all, but, but many within the church, kind of had pretty significantly faulty thinking about God? Yeah, and, and that's a great point. I, I think the point you're making is, is great on several levels. One, science and brain science is actually affirming uh, things that the Bible has said for thousands of years. And that's exciting to be able to, to look at the brain science, the brain research, and say, wow, the Bible was right 2,000 years ago. Without any CAT scans or MRIs or, or neurobiology, it was still right. Um, so why do people struggle with distorted ideas? Um, well, I think it has to do a lot with uh, innocent and inadvertent ideas that slowly uh, encroach over time as we take our human ideas and put them back on the Bible rather than letting the Bible reveal itself to us. We hear things uh, such as um, folks that are out there in the world of, uh, of motivational speakers that talk about mind over matter, things of this sort. I mean, most definitely, science has found a very strong connection between the way we think or view things and our health, hasn't it? Absolutely, and everybody has probably heard of something called the placebo effect, and the idea that uh, if you get a uh, sugar pill but you believe it's a pain pill, that uh, you not only get pain relief, but brain science has now shown that if you believe you're getting a pain pill, your brain will actually release uh, chemicals called endorphins and keflins, which are brain-produced opiates or painkillers. So you actually get physiological brain change if you believe you're getting a pain pill. But if you are told you're getting a sugar pill and uh, and uh, no longer believe you're getting a pain pill, the brain does not release the endorphins and enkephalins, so you don't get the pain relief. So something as simple as that, uh, when we have a change in belief about what's happening, there's physiological consequences that are different depending on what we believe. Medical science certainly understands this. I mean, uh, for example, my mother, who's been a cancer patient for almost a decade now, when she was first under treatment by her oncologist, uh, encouraged her that very much how she viewed this particular battle with cancer, what her anticipated desire was in terms of the outcome and her her mental viewpoint on the ability 
ability to to get through all of this, meaning the chemotherapy, the surgery, so on and so forth, would play a major role on whether or not she was going to be able to beat this disease or not. And I'm pleased to report that in the decade, uh, her, her mental viewpoint on all of this has been very good, very positive, and she's managed to um, be into full remission four times over in the last decade. So having said that, clearly those of you in the, the medical arena have seen a connection between the impact that our thinking has on our physical well-being. Why is it that we've kind of perhaps within the church lost the understanding or maybe failed to in the first place recognize the understanding that there's also a very strong impact between our relationship with Christ or the viewpoints that we have on God uh, based on maybe the, the impressions that we had as a child and the way we think of God? You know, I think something happened in uh, uh, several hundred years after Christ where the idea of God being the builder, creator who constructed his universe to operate on design parameters or protocols, laws of health, laws of gravity, these these construction protocols that nature operates on being God's law, that instead an idea that God was like a a Roman emperor, a dictator, imposing arbitrary law, human-type law, really came into the uh, Christian thought process and seeing changed, and you, you can see that in history, where in the early church was very self-sacrificial, but then suddenly the church went on the crusades, and we had the Inquisition, and we would burn people at the stakes uh, for not believing the way. So methodology changed because this construct of God's law changed from protocols upon which life was built to impose rules you better keep or else. Mm. And so with all of this, it has created, uh, to many degrees, passed down through the millennia, uh, in some camps, a distorted God construct, hasn't it, that that as a result has subsequently significantly impacted everything from our our physical well-being, mental well-being, as we mentioned a moment ago, to even our spiritual health as well as relationships? Absolutely. And what's uh, what's, uh, striking is that most Christians wouldn't um, dispute this idea if they're talking about a non-Christian somebody in a Wiccan camp worshipping, you know, white witchcraft and these things. Oh yeah, that's going to be that. What's striking though is that within Christianity within any any individual church group you can go into a group of Christians and you can find some that worship a God of love who's benevolent and kind as Jesus revealed them, but you can find some that are worshipping an authoritarian or punitive or distant or punishing God and and all within Christianity and what we discovered is that viewpoint within the same religion actually has a different impact on how your brain functions and, and, and actually structurally changes the brain and ultimately your physical health. Right. From your position as a physician, where did you begin research into this arena to begin sort of connecting the dots, so to speak, uh, of the connection between whether or not we have a healthy or a faulty and distorted, thus, uh, God construct in our minds, and then the ultimate impact that it has on not only, in in many respects, I guess, self-defeating behaviors and toxic relationships, but, but the aspects in which it touches every part of life. Well, I think it really started for me in my residency. When I started my psychiatric residency, um, I guess more than 20 years ago now, I... um was challenged by my faculty, who by and large didn't believe in God and kind of looked like historic psychiatrists often have, down on those who do look on God as somehow being un- do believe in God as somehow being unenlightened in some way, and so they really challenged us, and we had to read the theorists like Freud and Jung and Adler and, and many of the, the theorists who don't have a great God concept, and uh, these ideas were very challenging for me, and I had the premise that, okay, I believe God is real. If he is real, then the evidence should 
support that. His, his, we should be able to find evidences that, that sustain God's Word and not have to simply say, well, I believe and I'm, I'm just not going to look at any, any evidence or facts. And, uh, and so I started research 20 years ago into this to, to identify the protocols, the evidences that were there, and it's been fantastic and, and rewarding and, and validating to, to discover that the Christian viewpoint is much more um, scientific, much more evidence-based, much more reliable than a viewpoint that excludes God. Have you had a chance to see this play out in the um, in the patient relationship in the sense that you've been able to notice differences in a patient's ability to respond to treatment, uh, for example, uh, take two identical, generally identical sets of of uh, symptoms and uh, patients of about the same health condition, age, weight, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, find one who has a strong, positive viewpoint on God and on life, and then one who does not, and then be able to play this out at all in any even remotely scientific fashion to see the end results of, of the treatment process for those patients? Well, it, it, yes, and it even is a little more subtle than you would suggest, believe in God or not believe in God. How about one that believes in a God of love, and who is self-sacrificial and beneficent, and one who believes in a judgmental, punishing God, and one believes God is, is cares for them and wants to deliver them, and one believes God is actually doing this to them. Mm. See, that is even more striking. When people and I have had patients come see me, and I talk about a young lady in the very beginning of my book who was quite depressed and distraught because she wasn't able to have children, and she was distraught because her pastor told her it was her fault because when she was an adolescent, she had gotten pregnant, had an abortion, and her pastor told her God was punishing her, and she would never be able to have children because of that. Mm. So this viewpoint of an angry, chastising God that is punishing her for past sins or mistakes. I mean, my goodness, you can see the manner in which that could impact every level of one's relationship with Christ and ultimately the way you, your, your belief system works. Yes, and, and, and neurobiologically, when you have those beliefs, it actually fires the brain's fear circuitry called the amygdala, which causes in your body the activation of your immune system, which kicks up inflammatory factors. And this chronic activation, if this continues, actually results in uh, increasing risk of obesity, diabetes, high cholesterol, heart attacks, stroke. It reacts on the brain, increasing your risk of depression. I mean, this is very damaging to the to the physiology to have chronic fear and anxiety going. Whereas if you come back to a knowledge of God as a God of love, when we fire the brain's love circuits, which is called the anterior scene of the cortex, they actually calm or shut down the fear circuitry. So just as the Bible teaches, perfect love casts out all fear. Neurobiologically, that's actually true. Mm, I want to go deeper on this, doctor. You've just piqued my curiosity here. We see a connection between anxiety and fear, the way the patient reacts. And we all know what that's like. I mean, you're, you're dealing with a situation maybe in your financial life or at home or at work, and you're filled with fear and anxiety and you're on edge constantly and the bile's just right up there. And, and, and it seems like everything that you touch and come in contact with goes wrong. And it doesn't go your way and it doesn't feel good. And you just don't you just have that tremendously unsettling feeling about everything. Wonder how much of that can directly be correlated to your viewpoint or understanding of very God himself. We're exploring that equation. A look at the God shaped brain, how changing your view of God transforms your life. Written by Dr. Timothy Jennings. He's with us tonight. We're going to get back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Dr. Timothy Jennings with us tonight. A look at the God-shaped brain. You know, it's interesting because we, we gave a mental assent to this around the around the periphery. For example, um, we talk about Philippians 4.8, a passage of Scripture that we are all very, very familiar with. Uh, Finally, brothers, whatever things are true and whatever things honest and just and pure, holy, lovely, so on and so forth, if they be of good report, any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Why is God telling us to do that? Why are we encouraged to to meditate um, on the things of the Lord? Why are we told to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ or put on the mind of Christ. Ironically, Dr. Jennings, we talk a lot about this issue of thoughts and the way we view things mentally, and yet when it comes to playing this out in reality, we've not seen perhaps the, or at least been willing to acknowledge that strong connection between how we view God or think of God and the way that plays out in every aspect of life, physically, mentally, spiritually. Yeah, and I think part of the reason for that is somehow these ideas is entered into much of religion and Christianity that what happens in church is about your future eternal security. It's like, it's like future life insurance. And so you get things taken care of for the future need by going through the proper rituals or accepting Jesus, but it doesn't actually have impact on our life today. Rather than realizing what we've shown in the book is that God has actually constructed his universe to operate in certain ways. And living in harmony with his design for life, actually, as Christ said, that we might have life and have it more abundantly now. And there actually is a real-life consequence to living in harmony with God's design or deviating from that design that we experience here and now. Mm. Let's talk a bit about some of the issues related to fear. We touched on this just before the break. Um, We know that there are certain chemicals that are produced in the brain when we are subject to circumstances or situations that either uh, increase anxiety in us or create a sense of fear in us, uh, that kind of a fight-flight reaction. If we view God with a sense of fear and trepidation, does that also produce that? That, that kind of chemical reaction in the brain? Absolutely. And, I, and this is what we've shown in, in the, in the, uh, from the science and from the, in the book, is that this chronic fear activation is actually antagonistic to love. Love and fear are inversely proportional. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hit because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out all fear. And so there's actually, neurobiologically, there's this tension that sets itself up. The part of the brain where you experience, and when I use the word love, I'm, I'm uh, describing compassion, altruistic regard, self-sacrifice, beneficence. We're not talking erotic or romantic love. We're talking that, that brotherly love that one uh, loves so much they give their life for a friend, that kind of love. When Christ said, um, you know, uh, greater love is no man, they lay his life down for a friend, this kind of love means I care so much for you that I'll do whatever's for your best interest, including give my life that you might live. Many parents experience this love for their children. If their children are in some danger, they would easily step into that danger to protect their child. Well, that's at war with another principle that's driven by fear since Adam's sin that the scientists call survival of the fittest. I love myself so much, I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including, if it comes down to it, kill you that I might live. Love you, love you so much, I'll give my life that you might live. Love myself so much, I'll kill you that I might live. These are antithetical, love versus fear. Fear drives us to self-protection and exploit and hurt others. Mm. 
This process then of beginning to recognize the impact that our thinking process, the way we view or react to God, a lot of it, of course, goes back to a childhood. Um, we often hear stories, uh, Dr. Jennings, of individuals, for example, who um, are introduced to the claims of Christ later in life and often struggle with the imagery of God as a benevolent, loving, protective, heavenly Father who would sacrifice his only begotten Son on our behalf behalf, and we, we, some people will reject that just absolutely out of hand because they grew up in a household where there was perhaps an absentee father or a you know drug-crazed, alcoholic-driven, uh, abusive father. And so the notion of being able to equate a loving Heavenly Father who sacrifices His Son on behalf of all of us that we might walk in relationship with Him is antithetical to their, to their manner of thinking. Yes, you're exactly right, and that is a barrier for some people. Our childhood experiences certainly can put obstacles in the way, and that's, of course, why we are called to be witnesses, uh, the hands and feet, so to speak, uh, God's uh, disciples and agents on earth, to love those individuals, and so they may not have experienced God-like love in their childhood, but they can experience God-like love in their adulthood from others who can still love them in spite of their shortcomings and anger, and ultimately lead them to see Christ in us. We talk about this notion in Scripture of bringing our thoughts into captivity. How can we rewire all of this? Um, This is a great point. And um, I I point out in the book that the way the the brain is designed is that there's a protein that is like um, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. It's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Brain-derived means the brain makes it. Neurotrophic factor is simply a factor that makes the neurons grow stronger. So think of it as uh, fertilizer for the neurons. When it's available, the neurocircuitry that gets it will actually sprout new connections. The brain will make new neurons that are influences of proteins like this. But the, this particular protein doesn't come off of the DNA or isn't produced immediately in this form. It comes in a precursor form called pro-BDNF. And that particular um, protein is actually like weed killer for the neuron. If it binds to the neuron, it will actually uh, kill the dendrite, kill the axon, cause pruning back of the neural circuitry. And so the key issue is if there's, a, if there's an enzyme available that will cleave this, this weed killer into the fertilizer, then the neuron grows stronger. What determines whether you have this enzyme or not? And this is fascinating. It's the activity of the neural circuit itself. If you're firing the neural circuit, using it, it produces this enzyme. So ProBDNF, the weed killer, is cleaved into the fertilizer and it grows stronger. The circuit grows. But if you're, if you're dormant, if you're leaving it inactive then and not using the circuit, then this enzyme is not produced and the weed killer actually takes over and you start pruning the circuitry back. And so imagine the situation of trying to study a language in high school, maybe Spanish in high school, and you're studying brute force memory, and you keep practicing, you're firing this circuit, this new forming circuit, and this enzyme's produced, and you get more of the fertilizer, and it expands, and you keep doing it, and the circuitry grows. And then one day you graduate, and 20 years go by, and you haven't spoken the language for 20 years, and what happened to your ability and proficiency? It's been pruned back. Well, where, where every thought into captivity comes now, let's say um, we have somebody in their imagination imagining certain thoughts, like we can lock a pedophile up in prison so he can't act on the behavior, but can we control the imagination? No. And if you fire those thoughts in your imagination, you're still activating the circuit, you're still producing the enzyme, you're still growing the pedophilic uh, type of thinking stronger, and so the person may come out more recidivist pedophile than they went in if they're not bringing their thoughts into captivity. Hmm. 
So a lot of this has to do with the way we control and focus our thoughts. And again, that goes back to much of the the instruction that we've received, but sadly have never put it fully into practice within Scripture. So if we have been raised with a fearful viewpoint of God, um, and we know what the brain's reaction is to that, as much as the way we see the way the brain will react to, to violence and the numbing effect, oftentimes, for example, in children that spend hours on end um, viewing violent video games, Games or or television programs, and after a while, it tends to kind of anesthetize them to the, to the reality of what they're really facing. Then, mm-hmm. when they are exposed to real significant violence, they're almost uh, nonchalant about it because they've been anesthetized to all of this. So, if if then there has been a long process of training, so to speak, the brain to believe that God is someone to be feared, and and as a result, um, has has set up this boundary. Uh, uh, that prevents us from able to enter into the kind of relationship that God wants with us or uh, the impact that it has on other relationships we mentioned a moment ago. How do we retrain that process? Yeah, this is uh, in our book, we've introduced this idea of the um, integrative evidence-based approach. We have to be willing to look at evidence. And we've, and we've identified three threads of evidence that God has provided that when we harmonize all three, we can have a more consistent idea of the truth that God is trying to reveal. And the three threads are Scripture, all scripture is given by God for inspired, inspired by God is given for instruction and so forth. Science, it says in Romans one twenty that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. We look into nature and science and experience, taste and see that the Lord is good. The scripture says, check me out, experience me. And if you separate the three threads, science without the other threads, without scripture, is vulnerable to going into godless evolutionism. If you have experience without scripture and science, it's vulnerable to mysticism, particularly Eastern mysticism, which is making huge inroads in America. And then scripture alone without the other two, I don't know if you know, but the the Christian Encyclopedia currently identifies 34,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible supports their view. Hmm. And so without the other two anchors, we end up in confusion and disagreement and argument. And so bringing all three threads together, we can find a harmonized truth that reveals, and this is what the beauty and this is what we've shown in the book, is that God is love. And that love, when you come back to a knowledge of God's love, it actually activates healthy brain circuits. It turns off the fear circuits. We have less anxiety, lower heart rates, lower blood pressures, lower uh, cholesterol levels. We have less risk of heart disease. We live longer. We have less risk of dementia. All these things happen when we come back to a knowledge of God. But we hold those other distorted concepts. We actually have more disease and, and we have more disability. There's so much about this business of putting on the mind of Christ and bringing our thoughts into captivity and focusing on him. Now, of course, the big key, if you've been eavesdropping on this conversation, um, as Dr. Janine points out in the book, insight doesn't always equal change. You have to take a proactive approach. And I would encourage you today, if you've been struggling with a distorted God construct, um, maybe it's time to put off that old way of thinking um, and, and recognize that beliefs indeed impact uh, our physical, mental, and spiritual health and well-being. And so coming back full circle to meditate on Scripture, to bring our thoughts into captivity, and to, to imply or apply the, the uh, 
the core, quite frankly, of what we're taught in Philippians 8, of what to focus on in getting back to God's Word and, and reinventing, so to speak, the way we think of God and ultimately relate to Him uh, is one of the biggest keys to changing your view of God and then transforming your life. The book called The God-Shaped Brain, a newly published, by the way, by InterVarsity Press, and you can get information on the web at comeandreason.com. That's comeandreason.com. And our thanks to its author, Dr. Timothy Jennings, for being with us on this edition of LifeLive. And now back to LifeLine with Craig Roberts. Well, you know, Craig, uh, very few people know, even those who work inside the radio station, that we have uh, a secret kitchen here on the 14th floor of the KFAX Broadcast Center. As a matter of fact, they're preparing a few wonderful things in the background that you can probably hear. But to talk turkey right now, what we do is we talk to our butterball expert turkey talker, and she's been talking turkey for more than 24 years. Her name is uh, Mary Klingman. She's a graduate of Simpson College in Iowa with a degree in home economics. She's been interviewed over 1,200 times on just about every media outlet you can imagine, from the Today Show, Rachel Ray Show, USA Today, Fox News, even the Late Show with David Letterman. And Mary, I'm just curious, when you were with uh, Letterman, did you have to do the uh, the stage set and actually prepare a turkey on stage with Dave? No, luckily I was just talking to him. So he wanted to talk about deadly turkey poisoning, and I thought, you know what, I'm not going there. (laughs) Yeah, because he, he really wanted me to make fun. I mean, so... I thought, okay, I'll do that. Mm. So we had a good time. Let's have a good time here and talk a few things about turkey. And uh, Craig Roberts, who is the host of Lifeline, I know he is sort of a connoisseur when it comes to preparing uh, food. And uh, uh, I myself also a chef as well, not a professional. But let's talk about uh, your favorite uh, subject here. And what are your favorite tips for preparing the perfect turkey? And, of course, that's really why we're here. We've been doing it now for over 30 years. We're, we want to have your Thanksgiving be the best possible. And so we've gathered together a bunch of Make It Better tips, and we've always done that. We learned so much from Butterball over all these years. And what I think is kind of cool is that the information we learned from Butterball a long time ago still applies today. We're talking about food safety here and just really how to have that picture-perfect turkey. We all want that uh, tender and uh, juicy turkey, and you can get that so easily. Uh, there's lots of information out there to try and make your life a little bit more complicated, but the star of the show, the turkey, can be done so easily. Our favorite way, and it's very consistent results, and that is where you're going to cook it in a 325-degree oven. Uh, our favorite pan is one where the sides of the pan is a shallow pan. Mm-hmm. So the sides of the pan are about two, two and a half inches high. Now, we'd like you to have the turkey on a turkey rack to get it off the bottom of the pan, and what that does, it allows for good heat uh, all around it, so it's going to cook evenly. Mm. Now, if you don't have a rack, what you could do is take some carrots, you know, put those down there, maybe four or five, let the turkey rest on that, or you could take a piece of Reynolds foil, about three feet long, crunch it up into a donut, Mm -hmm. and then put that down there, and then rest the turkey on top of that. 
so it gets it gets it off the bottom of the pan. But the really key, uh, we find that a lot of people overcook turkeys. I mean, that's just incredible. And if you've ever had a dry turkey, it's because it's been overcooked. Mm-hmm. So how can you prevent that? You can do that by using a meat thermometer, and you that's so important because when you look at those turkeys, you know your house can smell wonderful. Uh, the turkey looks great. It's been in there the allotted amount of time, so it should be done, but you don't know. So you let it sit in there for about half an hour to an hour longer. All it's doing at that point is could be overcooking. Right. So and, use that meat thermometer. And, you know, I think there's also the fear of undercooking a turkey, too, but also the, the concern of overcooking to have a dry turkey. So the meat thermometer is very important for that process, right? Absolutely. My mother-in-law used to be able to tell when beef was done by smelling in the kitchen. I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. I could never do that. And she, it would work like a charm all the time. That does not apply with turkey. You've got to know what temperature it's at because you just you want to cook it just till it's done and that's it. But one of the neat pearls about Butterball that we've been sharing over all these years is about two-thirds of the way through the cooking time, then what you've got to do at that point is take an aluminum foil tent and put that just in the about the size of a piece of typing paper. It's not very big. And put that up there on the breast meat. And what that does, it slows down the cooking of the breast just a bit so that the rest of the turkey gets up to temperature. Mm. That's one of my favorite tips as well, to use that tint of aluminum foil. You know, uh, even the most seasoned home cook sometimes is uh, you know, left wondering how to prepare that perfect turkey. Uh, what are some of the most common problems you hear from callers about this? Well, a lot of times they don't allow enough time to thaw. Now, you can cook a turkey from partially frozen and all that. That's not a problem. It's going to throw your timing all off, um, you know, that kind of thing. You might not be able to get the gibbets out, and that's fine, too. The gibbets were put in bags that were like boiling bags, so it's not a concern. So sometimes we just don't allow enough time, but, you know, that, that can be addressed. And we also are concerned about the fact that after the turkey comes out of the oven, we like to have everybody have it cut up and put back in your refrigerator to you know, get cold for all those great leftovers. Mm. One rule of thumb for sure is that you are never to put a whole turkey, which is large, into your refrigerator hole. Mm. You want to cut it up. After the, uh, exactly. And of course, Thanksgiving is all about the, the leftovers, too. So if you're just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Mary Klingman, who is a butterball expert turkey talker. And by the way, is there a website or a place where people can go to uh, your organization and check out some of the recipes and some safety tips? Absolutely. In fact, this year we're on live chat, which is on Butterball.com. That's been a lot of fun. We've been typing to people instead of talking to them. So, you know, that's kind of an, another neat way to reach us. And, of course, Facebook and Twitter were on there as well. But one of the things on our website that is just, I think, wonderful is that over our 30 years, we have gathered together. Every year we'll come out with new recipes, and they have been absolutely wonderful, well-tested. And so those are all on our website. So you can check that out if you're looking for some great leftovers. And again, the address is? Uh, Butterball.com. Butterball.com. It sounds like you have a whole host of people in the background with you, too. You could probably hear it. Yeah, mm-hmm. we have, uh, there's actually 61 ladies. They're all got a bachelor's degree in foods, a lot of home ec teachers, dietitians, that kind of thing. And so we all gather together every November and December to talk turkey. Uh, we go through Butterball University in October to you know make sure that we're prepared for this year with any kind of new cooking method that might be out there or a new recipe that maybe somebody is suggesting. So 
know, we just try to get as much education as we can to help you. You know, if, if I've cooked a turkey every which way possible, whatever you're going to ask me, I'm going to be able to help you. <laughs> it's like having your own expert in the kitchen with you right there. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell, tell us about one of the craziest stories you've heard on Thanksgiving about cooking a turkey or something in the kitchen. What's one of your favorites? Well, one thing that was, I always enjoyed was, was a lady who called from... Um, Colorado, and she had buried her turkey in the snowbank outside, and she had called Butterball to find out how to thaw it. Well, it had snowed the night before, and now she couldn't find it. So, you know, what should she do? So that was, we always enjoyed that, and the only thing we could think to tell her is that maybe time next time put it on a pole with a flag on it or something, you know, to, to catch up. But it's always fun to talk with gentlemen, too. I, I know one guy that I just totally enjoyed. He had lost a bet uh, on a football game, mm-hmm. and now he had to fix the thing Thanksgiving dinner for 20 people, and he oh didn't cook, and what's a guy to do, he was thinking. So, and, you know, between cell phones today, you might be, you know, walking down the store aisle with people, just helping them out, you know, picking out gravy and deciding how you can make, you know, how you can pull it off. Mm. Great stories indeed. So, you know, uh, before we let you run here and get back to all of your, your chats and whatnot with other people and other listeners, do you have a favorite recipe that you would like to share with us? Oh, a favorite recipe. Maybe a wow. stuffing um, or a, maybe a turkey. What, what, what are your favorites? You know, I, I, I certainly encourage people. A couple of things that I encourage people to do is think about making uh, cranberry sauce from scratch. I know a lot of people, you know, they just think, oh, that's tough. It's so easy to do, and it really tastes great. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, And one thing that I've been doing the last few years that has helped me a lot um, I work on Thanksgiving Day, and so by the time I get home, the turkey's in the oven, but by the time the company has left that night, I'm kind of tired. Mm. So the last thing I want to do is think about what do you do with turkey soup and things like that. You know, how can you use the whole turkey? Right. So what I've been doing the last three years is that I will have a soup pot where they're going to carve the turkey, and in the soup pot, I will have some chicken broth and maybe cut up onion and some celery and carrots and that kind of thing. They'll throw the bones in there. While the company, while we're eating, that's going to be simmering on top of the stove. By the time the company's left, all I have to do is strain that, get the stock and the broth out of there, and put it into a bowl that I put immediately in the refrigerator to get cool. And the next day, I have great chicken stock, uh, chicken stock, great turkey stock, and I've used the whole turkey. That's an excellent idea. I never thought of that before. Yeah, it's, it's really, uh, because before I would just throw it out. I mean, I, I just didn't want to think about doing that. And this way I do it, and I feel so good on the weekend because uh, then you yes. can have, a, it makes great uh, vegetable soup and, you know, turkeys, leftover turkey soup. And it's supposed to be a, a sort of a wonderfully cool weekend here, at least in the Bay Area. So that might be a wonderful recipe to enjoy over the weekend with the cool weather. So, well, Mary, uh, before we let you go, again, if you can give out your web address where people can contact you, if you have any questions about how to prepare that perfect turkey, or if you're just curious about some safety tips that you would like to employ in your kitchen to make sure everyone enjoys and leaves happy and healthy. Again, your uh, address, uh, Mary. Yeah, it's butterball.com. That's where you can get the live chat. Uh, Facebook and Twitter were available as well. Plus, call us at 1-800-BUTTERBALL or 1-800-288-8372. We're here every day, even through the weekend, and we'll be happy to help you have that great picture-perfect turkey. Mary Klingman of uh, Butterball, our expert turkey talker, a very happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Well, I appreciate that you're calling, Mark, and thank you so much, and you have a great Thanksgiving as well. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.